Well, good morning, Church of the Valley. My name is Chris, and I'm one of the pastors here on staff. Welcome to you uh, post-Thanksgiving Sunday. Uh, Y'all are uh, fairly awake, so maybe the tryptophan from the turkey is still an an issue, but I'm excited to be here this morning and bring the Word of God to you. And, you know, during my time of preparation for this text that we're in, I was listening to worship music to sort of tune my heart to what God might have for us as we look at a passage like this. In the playlist that I was listening to, the song, Because He Lives, came on, and I was really struck by the words of that song in thinking about this particular text. Now, today, as we look at the burial of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior of mankind, we must look at it in light of the fact, and I, and I want to emphasize the fact, that this is not the end of the story. Our Savior lives. Not only was he risen from the dead and risen indeed, as we would especially say around Resurrection Sunday, but we understand the truth of Scripture says that he is seated at the right hand of the Father now, reigning on high and ruling this church, his church, and his universal church as king. But this was, this was a dark three days that we would cover, but we would know again that this is not the end of the story. In fact, we would see uh, this is not the end of the story when we talk about Jesus being seated at the right hand of the Father in the letter to the church at Ephesus, written through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit uh, by Paul. He is first talking about the uh, thanksgiving of in praying for them and having the eyes of their hearts enlightened um, and and recognizing their inheritance as, as his holy people. And then he goes on to say this in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 through 23. It says, "...and his incomparably great power for us who believe." That power, listen to this, is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, which is where he is right now, by the way, church. And far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in in every way. And as we think about his burial, I think we need to be reminded about a few things. Just a couple of weeks ago, our very own Karen Miller said this, Jesus brings justice by taking the punishment that we deserve. Now, we've already covered that last week, the the punishment that Jesus took on. That's a punishment that we deserve. But again, it emphasizes the reality that Jesus did die a human physical death. But not only that, uh, recently also our very own Ruth Zilka said this, John shows Jesus as a powerful yet willing participant in his arrest that would lead to his death. Jesus went to the cross willingly and died willingly. They did not have any power over him that was not given to them by him. But remember Even as we cover the burial of Jesus the Messiah today, this is not the end of the story. In fact, in Ephesians, once again in chapter 2, verses 4 through 6, we see this. 
But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in our transgressions or our sins. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. I want to tell you about a fish. I want to show you a fish. I'm going to tell you about a fish named Fishy the Fish. At a church that uh, Tanya and Matthew and I attended early in our marriage in Ohio, they had what was called Awana. You may or may not be familiar with that program. That's not a program that we have here at Church of the Valley, but the program really is centered around uh, getting kids to memorize Scripture. And then they have all kinds of games and activities to sort of incentivize that. And, And at our church, what they had one night was they had some sort of goldfish race going on. And our oldest, who's 12 now, was probably three or four at the time. And we had a pretty large children's ministry. And so they had a bunch of kids there playing with goldfish. The church took it upon themselves without notifying any of the parents that they were sending these goldfish home with the kids. How do you as a parent of a three or four year old look at them and say, no, you can't take that fish home that you're holding in your hand right now in a plastic bag with water in it? I mean, so the church was wrong in doing that, okay? And you can honestly tell, you could probably tell, like, I still have not fully healed from this experience. Um, I may need to call that pastor again who I've not spoken to in several years, not because of that, by the way. There's not some sort of weird animosity there. But that fish was sent home, and, and, and we were, none of the parents knew this was happening, and so we're all like, yeah, we're excited. Why would you do this to us? Uh, here's why that's wrong. Goldfish don't live long, right? They, they just don't. Uh, Fishy the fish uh, was with us and, and got spoiled. So that, that fish that we didn't know about got an aquarium. That fish got a filter for that aquarium. That fish got a net to clean the aquarium. That fish got food. That fish did not last long. The fish was eventually sent to the great beyond via our toilets. And that young boy, who had named that fish, Fishy the Fish, handled that situation very well until it had spun out of view, and then he kind of lost it. Now that young boy is now a young man, as far as we can tell, not traumatized by his friend with gills that is no longer with us. And that young man is more likely to tell fish jokes or maybe to inquire whether a fish sneezes, ever gets thirsty, or can get seasick, or just because it lives in the sea, they just call it sick. Who knows? The reality is, is that Fishy the Fish was not unlike every other living creature that has ever walked or swam the earth. We all have an expiration date, except for one. But nevertheless, we are brought together today to observe, reflect on, and hopefully be transformed by the reality, reality of the burial of the Messiah the promised one of God, who did die a human death 
in what would seem to be to pretty much everyone who followed him the end of a time in their lives that was largely impactful. But in this narrative, we get a glimpse into the actions of two rather interesting characters as we see the burial of the Messiah. And we do know that this is not the end of the story because of the resurrection. And while as a Christian, as a pastor in a church, we believe in the resurrection of Christ, we also believe that he did die a human death and was buried in a tomb. And the two people, other than Jesus Christ, that are covered in this passage, they're unique, folks. They're unique because they are operating really undercover in this passage, at least from what we can tell. But I want us to try and avoid what I think would be a disservice to these two individuals and just assume that they are cowards, that they are less than us, that they are somehow unique in how they operate here in this particular scenario. We all have our shortcomings when it comes to God. As a parent, I am continually aware of my shortcomings. In fact, Dr. Russell Moore wrote a book, The Courage to Stand. And in it, he talks about this very thing when he says, most parents internally compare themselves to their own parents who seem to be confident and and so sure of what to do while they are, by contrast, second-guessing every decision they make in guiding their children. One woman told me after she gave birth and was being wheeled out of the hospital with her baby, she wondered if she had grounds to sue the hospital since they were sending a live infant off with someone as incompetent as she thought herself to be. Now, this is a very difficult assessment of herself. But I can't help but wonder about these two covered here in this narrative. One thing is for sure, though. For us, in 2021, almost in 2022, we get the benefit of knowing all that the Lord wants us to know about this narrative and can bring ourselves to conclude, really, first of all, that there can be times that God is working in the hearts of people that we may not be aware of. Look at verse 38 once again. It says, Later Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. And with Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. Now we don't know with 100% certainty exactly where Arimathea is. Some have attributed it to a modern town called Rentis, which is a village in the western foothills of Samaria. And there's a lot of speculation about where this is, specifically because people want to find the actual tomb that Jesus' body was at. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later. It's speculated that perhaps Joseph was born in Arimathea, but had moved to the capital, and thereby had a tomb near Jerusalem where Jesus' body would be placed. So there's some things we don't know for sure, but, but here's what we do know. We do know that Joseph was a follower of Christ, but he was doing it in secret out of fear. He was afraid of the Jewish leaders. And this is not the only situation we see this, right? We saw it in Peter when he denied Jesus three times, right? But we also see it in John chapter 7. We see this sort of interaction in John chapter 7, beginning in verse 10, reading through verse 13, which I think is going to be up there. Um, But it says this, however, after his brothers... 
had left for the festival, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. Now at the festival, the, Jew, the, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus and asking, where is he? And among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him, and some said, he is a good man, and others replied, no, he deceives people, uh, but no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the leader. So I'll just give you that reference one again. That may not have been in my slide presentation. Nope. There, okay, so I made a mistake. Uh, my first one for the year. So John chapter 7, verses 10 through 13 is that reference. No one would say anything for fear of the leaders. Uh, now, we know that this happened at a specific time. It happened during the Feast of Booths, which would be also called the Feast of Tabernacles. It happens after harvest. It's a week-long fall celebration of the Lord's provision. And it was prescribed, and these are just references I'm going to give you for those who want to know, Leviticus 22, 33 through 36, and 39 through 43. There's this, this narrative throughout the Gospels, throughout the Gospel of John specifically, where people, they're just, like, they're, they're afraid. And we know that while he was following Jesus, he was afraid. And, and, and here in the situation in John chapter 7, like, they didn't want to say anything because they were afraid. They were afraid of the Jewish leaders. And we know that he was operating in fear, but we also see that he was touched by Jesus Christ. And we know that because he wanted to take care of the body of Jesus. Remember that there can be times that God is working in the hearts of people that we may not be aware of. Church of the Valley, I'm the new guy. On staff, I'm the new guy. And so I, I come with fresh eyes in seeing what God is doing like here and now. And everything that's happened in the past, like I just, like, okay, I get told, like, here's who our missionary is, right? Like I met him online before I actually met him in person this morning. But I am just shocked and amazed in a good way when I saw how many people stepped up and helped with a trunk or treat. Like that parking lot over there was full of people operating in and working. And then the, 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 the courtyard area here, it, it was full of people serving, of, of stepping up. Some of those people that helped for that event haven't even been at the church that much longer than I have. And that's amazing. Sometimes... God is working in the hearts of people that we may not be aware of. But sometimes there is this, this, this fear of, this, this hesitancy to step out for whatever reason in the hearts of people. And it's that kind of, that kind of fear, that kind of maybe timid heart that Paul speaks to when he writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 7 through 8. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 7 through 8 says this. For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid. The ESV would literally say, not given us a spirit of fear, but it's the exact same idea. But gives us power, love, and self-discipline. So do not be ashamed about the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Timothy was encouraged with that. And we should encourage one another in that. Like, Step out for the sake of the gospel. Don't be timid about it. There can be times that God is working in the hearts of people that we may not be aware of. We should encourage one another in gospel pro proclamation. We should encourage one another in loving our neighbors for the sake 
of the gospel. But we do it with wisdom, right? Now, now Mike talked about we didn't have anybody really berate us when we went out into the neighborhood. There was nothing thrown at anybody that I know of. There, was no, there were no uh, F-bombs or curse words or anything like that thrown at anybody for knocking on the door and just simply inviting them to the church. That is a step. But the next step is, hey, let me tell you about this Jesus Christ who, yes, died on the cross. Yes, was buried in a tomb. But yes, is risen, is risen indeed, and is seated at the right hand of God. Because that's the greatest thing I could tell you about right now. But we do it with a spirit of wisdom, right? Jared C. Wilson wrote a book, Gospel-Driven Ministry, and he said this. He said, I cannot simply berate people into centering on grace. I need to hold it up for them to see. I can't simply tell people to be awed by Christ. I need to hold up Christ's glory so that they can be. If we want people to be more changed towards the image of Christ, we will center on the only power for this change the gospel of Christ. This gospel that speaks into a really interesting narrative that we're focusing on today. But I want to talk some more about some things that we don't know about Joseph. While we know he was a follower in secret, we don't know who shared this secret. We just don't know. We don't know if he had gone to some family members, some friends, and just shared with them and just said, look, just but for the sake of my life, please don't tell anybody. We don't know. We don't know anything other than the narrative here. We do know, according to Matthew chapter 19, verses 21 through 26, that it would show him as a disciple and it would show him as rich, as wealthy. We, we know that he is a member of the Sanhedrin. Now, if you don't know the Sanhedrin, they were a Jewish council of 71 members. They were patterned after the 70 elders that got established through Moses. In the Gospels, they are called the Council of Elders. So he was important, he was influential, and he was a part of a group of people that didn't like Jesus. And we can't, and we don't know if he was eventually outed, exposed as a Christian and ultimately crucified. We don't know that. And these kinds of questions, they can't be sufficiently answered. But I think something that Tim shared a while ago can be very helpful when he said, if Scripture is quiet on something, don't obsess over it. And we do know he was a disciple, and he was doing it in secret out of fear. But let's not be too quick to think that that wouldn't be us, because we don't live in his context. One thing that the Ukraine interest meeting is going to, you're going to hear in that if you attend that, is if you go with us to Ukraine this summer, you're not going into a, a country that has persecution of Christians. You're just not. There are some missionaries, there are some people that work in context where you literally, they, 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 they tell people, like, don't tell people where I'm at, where I'm at, for fear of the lives of my family. That's not that's not Ukraine. In fact, if you go to Ukraine, working with Mission to Ukraine, the organization that we're working with over there, what you have to say to customs of why you're entering, I am a volunteer worker with Mission to Ukraine, and they'll let you in. Some countries you have to say, like, I'm a school teacher, and yes, that's true, but you, you are going undercover of spreading the gospel because it's a persecuted area. That's not us. And here, 
That's just not us, right? Hold up your phone if you have your phone with you. I would say most, if not all of you, you have the Bible on your phone, right? All right, now take out the, the Bible in front of you in the pew. Now, none of you, when you held those things up, are worried about somebody, like, running through the doors and arresting you for that, right? That's because it's not us. We don't live in Joseph's context. Remember what just happened to Jesus Christ. And to be tied to him was a literal matter of life and death. But remember that even in those contexts... While we get a glimpse into this, that there can be times that God is working in the hearts of the people that we may not be aware of. I don't know most people here that well yet, because I'm the new guy. But I was shocked recently even to get the certain messages or encouragements of people like I had no idea how to heart for missions but are saying look I'm going to at least attend that meeting I don't know if I can go but I'm going to at least going to going to seriously consider going and I'm going that's awesome I didn't even know that was you that that you thought about that there are those things that happen folks that that you're not aware of that that are going on in the background like God is working in the hearts and minds of people here God is doing some amazing things and as we go back to the text we see yes he was operating in in fear in a ways, but he did show honor and respect to Jesus by doing what he did. And by the way, asking for the body of Jesus was a brave thing to do. Why is it a brave thing to do? What if he got caught? Now, we see that he got Pilate's permission, but remember remember who Pilate is? Ultimately, it was him. We would say God, right? Ultimately, it was him who decided Jesus was going to be crucified. From a human perspective, this guy could have said, oh, hey, Jewish leaders who just caused all these problems, there's this guy Joseph who just came to me asking for the body of Jesus. I'm pretty sure he follows Jesus. You might want to check him out, and then we'll have another round of crucifixion. This was a brave thing to do. Verse 39, he was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. The Gospel of John is the only place where Nicodemus is featured, as far as the Gospels are concerned. In fact, we, we, we see the interaction of Nicodemus and Jesus early in the Gospel of John. It's in John chapter 3. We see really the bulk of it in verses 1 through 15, but really in verses 2 through 3, here's what we see. That he, meaning Nicodemus, came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs that you were doing if God were not with him. And Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. And then this this interesting dialogue ensues. Nicodemus is like, born again, how can I go back into my mother's womb? And like, that doesn't make any sense. What? You know, would be, would be kind of the, the Chris version of that. And then we eventually would get John 3.16, probably the most popular verse in Scripture, that God loved the world so much that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And God was working in his heart then. And then we get 
nothing about him until we see him participating in the burial of Jesus Christ. There are times that God is working in the hearts of people that we just may not be aware of. Last week, the worship team had a meeting in here. Malik is our worship lead and does an excellent job. Does an excellent job. And we are gifted with the people that God has put here to lead us to the throne of worshiping our Heavenly Father. And uh, I was talking with Tim this week about some people that were there. And again, I was surprised by some people that showed up to the meeting. I'm like, wow, I didn't even know that person was musically gifted or talented or even, even you know, had thought about getting up on the stage. And I, I thought it was an amazing thing. God's work in here, folks. It may not always be visible, but it's happening. And Sunday, Sunday's a great time. Sunday's a great time to gather, to get together. But Sunday's not it. That's not all that we are a part of. And, and, and there's, there's always going to be a calling for us to gather together in more than just the Sunday morning worship time. And we see Joseph of Arimathea. We see Nicodemus. And we see them following Christ, but, but dispersed and scattered. But really, all of his followers at this point we're scattered. John's kind of the outlier in all of this, but obviously Peter is a big example here, but basically everybody kind of run off to do their own thing in fear of what might happen to them. But in reflecting on this particular text, there's a pastor you probably haven't heard of, mainly because he was born in 1826 by the name of Alexander McLaren. As he's looking at these texts and he's, he's, he's reflecting on Joseph and he's reflecting on Nicodemus, he says this, and it's really more of a question. How many men and women, I wonder, are there who are to be and are not distinctly and openly united with the Christian community? There is a kind of God-ordained imperative to us gathering together like we do on Sunday mornings to worship Him corporately. This is something that is biblical. But this is not the whole of the Christian life. This is just a part of it. The first of the year, we're going to dive into the book of Acts, and we're going to look at constantly the early church. They're gathering together, and they're gathering together. They're what? They're, they're praying together. They're, 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 they're being taught. They're, they're teaching. They're reading the Word, but they're not just doing that. They're doing what many of us did Thursday. They're gathering together to have a meal together. They're fellowshipping with one another. You must, you need to be connected to the body of Christ outside of Sunday morning. Sunday morning can't be it for you. If you don't feel connected to the COV community and all you do is attend on Sunday mornings, that's part of the reason why. You can't get to know somebody's life story in a few minutes greeting them during the worship service. It's impossible. And that's not it. We have to live in community with one another. And be the first one to take that step, right? Don't be constantly waiting for, well, well, nobody ever invites me over for dinner. Well, invite somebody over for dinner. You say, well, I can't host in my house. You haven't seen my house. You don't know how bad it looks inside. Go to a coffee shop with them. Take them out next week to lunch and then come back and help decorate. And even as you do that, whether in passing or in structured ways, take your conversations beyond the mundane. 
the weather, your plans for Christmas, which talk about those things. Your favorite coffee shop, talk about those things, but take it beyond that. Talk about, celebrate, dig into the Word of God. Ponder not only the resurrection, but the death of Jesus. It brings us to places of really recognizing the need and, and, and the, the need to understand the full counsel of Scripture, which tells us, like, guys, we're supposed to be in each other's lives. And then we can come to a place, like in this text, as we do those things in community, where we see that confirmation of Jesus' death is really just a pretext to celebrating his physical resurrection. Look at verse 40 once again. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. Here is what we know about the Jewish burial customs. I hope in your, in your study time in the Word that you have a good study Bible. And one of the study Bibles I've really enjoyed recently is an archaeological study Bible. It talks a lot about the, the history of the places that they're in and really some of the customs around that. And so the archaeological study Bible talked about this specifically, this practice, and it's, it's referencing another situation in John chapter 11, verse 44, which I'm not going to read for you, I'm just referencing for you. That Temitic rabbis recall that their earlier predecessors ordained both linens and body coverings, and face cloths for burial. They would attribute the face cloths to burial practices of the poor that were later established for all. The corpse would normally be washed and anointed with oil, its chin bound in order for the mouth to not fall open. I tell you this to emphasize the importance of the actual body of Jesus being taken care of in this situation. The myrrhs and aloes, about 75 pounds in the previous verse, that was a lot. The wrapping of Jesus' body, which many speculated like wouldn't have actually been done by Joseph and Nicodemus because they would have been ceremonial, unc- or ceremonial unclean by, by actually touching the body. So they, they likely had servants helping them with this, but we, again, we don't know with certainty. Here is what we do know. There was a body, and that body was going to smell, folks. I like to watch TV. I really do. It's, it's one of the things I enjoy about my, my routine on a somewhat daily basis. If you're like me, your phone is with you all the times. If I'm shaving in the morning or combing my hair, I've got my phone on the counter watching a show. What? And one of the things I really like to watch is cop shows. Not all cop shows. I've, I've tried some and, and stopped them, but I enjoy cop shows. So I, I'm going I'm to test you a little bit. I want you to bring up that first picture. Who knows who this is? All right. Okay. All right, so some of you know Andy Griffith, all right? So here's, some other, here's another popular cop. Next one. Ah, who's the character, though? Olivia Benson. Who said it? Who said it? All right, all right. Okay, next one. Wow, that was quick. Was that you, Sarah? Yeah. Oh, you cheated. She was the one proofreading my uh, (laughs) keynote. All right, next one. Oh, Chief Wiggins, you say, was that you, Mike? All right, all right. So I love cop shows. There's something about them. Uh, Law and Order SVU is like the longest running drama show ever on TV. still going right now. 
And so I had to bring up Olivia Benson on that show. Well, one thing that you see consistently in any of these cop shows is, is, is you'll see a rookie and their first experience in an autopsy, which almost consistently is hilarious, and it's almost to a T the same narrative around, like they can't stand the sight, the smells, and it really, there's some form of that person getting rid of their Thanksgiving dinner. We'll just say it that way. It, it, it happens, right? Now, in school, stick with me. I'm getting back to the text, I promise. Uh, it, straight out of high school into college, I, I did carpet cleaning for a job. Uh, and steam cleaning, carpet cleaning. So I was the guy that would pull up uh, and, you know, you have the van, you have those big, what they called wands that, that kind of runs over the carpet to clean it. And so there was one situation where I, I went to a house to clean it, and what had happened is a cat, uh, the, the, the people's cat, got a hold of a rabbit. And the rabbit was brought inside, and there, it wasn't flushed down a toilet like Fishy the Fish, um, but it, it, its final resting place was on the carpet in this house. Okay, so here's one thing about steam cleaning that you may or may not know. If you're the worker taking care of a spot like this, the steam eventually gets up to your nose. Now, I have a pretty strong stomach when it comes to just various things. But I can, like, I'm almost getting a little sick right now, Daryl. You might have to get me a bucket or something pretty soon here. Um, when that steam from that particular scenario hit my nose, I just about lost. Like, I literally had to stop working and step away for a few minutes because I could not stand it. I say all that to draw you back to the reality that Jesus, his body, was an actual body, was actually dying and actually needed to be taken care of in this scenario so that it would not overwhelm those around him with the smell. The Holy Spirit through John included these details for a reason. We are to understand and acknowledge that Jesus did die a human death. The death was real. It then required a body to be properly cared for and buried for no other reason than to make sure that that stench didn't overtake the people around it. But remember that confirmation of Jesus' death here is just a pretext to, pretext to celebrating his physical resurrection. Verse 41. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. I want to tie this to something we talked about earlier. Because we talked about Joseph of Arimathea being a rich man, being a wealthy man. In fact, in, back in Isaiah, one of the most popular messianic chapters or, or prophecies about Jesus, meaning pointing to the Messiah, it says in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 9, that he was assigned a grave with the wicked. And the wicked be, would be a reference to those robbers who were on each side of him in Matthew chapter 27, verse 38, and with the rich in his death. And that would be a reference to Matthew chapter 27, verse 57, referencing Joseph of Arimathea, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth, talking about Jesus Christ. This is not just about what happened in John, it's about what happened in Isaiah and the whole narrative of Scripture. Now, the location of this cave is debated. The most common view of this is it's a small cave found in a Syrian chapel, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. That's the most commonly accepted place of Jesus' burial. 
There's another tomb, which is a garden tomb north of the old city Damascus Gate. This is not really widely accepted. For those of you uh, history buffs, the, the first one to propose this was a man by the name of General Charles Gort, George Gordon. And he suggested this location simply because it was outside the medieval walls of Jerusalem and was near a skull-shaped cliff face, so obviously it would make sense that this is where Jesus was laid. Where the location is exactly, but we know there was a location, there was a tomb, there was a body that was placed there. Verse 42. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Day of preparation would be a reference to Uh, The day preceding the Passover, all work is supposed to cease on the Sabbath. So the work had to be done at this point. So when it says because, that's just saying this is why it has to happen now. But we know that those days and those references are not as prevalent as they used to be. They observe the Sabbath. That's not necessarily something like God ordained prescribed for us nowadays. In fact, Paul addresses this in Romans chapter 14 verses 5 through 8. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each should be fully convinced in their own mind. And whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord. Praise God. For they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for ourselves alone and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or we die, we belong to the Lord. And here's the point. The focus of any of those practices is supposed to be on the Lord. The practice, the ritual, is never supposed to supplant the the Redeemer it's designed to point to. We don't idolize the Sunday morning experience. We worship the God that it points to. The remembrance of the burial of the Messiah is a somber remembrance, but remember, it's just a pretext. It's the opening credits to the greater story of redemption, where we see the Messiah risen from the grave and the gospel more relevant and powerful than ever, church. Confirmation of Jesus' death is just a pretext to celebrating his physical resurrection. Because while we recognize Jesus' burial, why we have focused last week on Friday, today on Saturday, Sunday is coming. And Saturday, we see Jesus' body was laid there. And we know God had touched the hearts of these two. We know that they honored Jesus by their care for his body. But we can also surmise there was probably some real feelings of grief. There they laid the body of Jesus, the great teacher, the one who fed the crowds, who made the blind see. But by their care for him in this moment, they laid his body to rest perhaps in despair. But for us, Sunday's coming. The body was laid to rest, treated with honor. But for them, maybe this was it. That was the end of the road. Credits had finished. There was no in-credits scene. There was just likely a dark, quiet, brand new tomb that contained the body of Jesus. For our context and for our sake, This leads to a deeper reflection on the reality of the gospel and what it means to us in 2021, almost 2022. How has it and how will it transform us? How will God continue to use it in ways that are somewhat visible to others and at various times not visible at all? So while we know that God is working in you inwardly, 
It may not be that public to others, but nevertheless, God has a plan to use you for his glory. Here and now, the greatest need for all of us is the full message of the gospel. The gospel that knows, yes, Jesus died, but that is not the end. The world needs the gospel, church. The church needs the gospel. In his book, What is a Healthy Church Member, a pastor by the name of Thabiti Anubwile said this. As he's writing in, a church is gospel-saturated is the chapter. He says this, the greatest need of any church today is the gospel. The gospel is not only news for a perishing world, it is the message that forms, sustains, and animates the church. Apart from the, the gospel, the church has nothing to say. That is nothing to say that cannot be said by some other human agency. The gospel distinguishes the church from the world, defines her message and mission in the world, and steals for people, her people against the fiery darts of the evil one and false elements of sin. The gospel is absolutely vital to a vibrant, joyous, persevering, hopeful, and healthy Christian and healthy church. So essential is the gospel to the church life that we need to be saturated in, in it in order to be healthy church members. Now, at Church of the Valley, we say healthy church participants, but nevertheless, the need for the gospel is ever-growing church. The gospel recognizes we are sinners in need of a Savior. That Savior died on the cross for our sins, was buried, but rose again. How is the gospel going to change you today? We'll pray, and as we pray, I'll ask Malit to come on up, and we'll be led in worship again. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We ask that you would help us to honor you today and every day of our lives, that we would be changed by it, not just be informed by it. God, may you be pleased as we worship you once again. In Jesus' name, amen.